Please be seated, accept the kiddos, you can be dismissed. Amen. Blessed assurance. Uh, Good morning. Good morning. Thank you. Uh, Just want to make sure you're out there. Um, So uh, I preach one more time next week. So if this is your last Sunday, I realize that a lot of you will be leaving. A lot already have left. Uh, But um, just make sure and come say hello to me and my wife and kids before you go. And if you're a visitor uh, and you like the preaching here today, uh, well, you'll, it gets better when I'm gone. Uh, and uh, if you don't like it, well, good news. You don't have to hear me for another couple months. Uh, so uh, either way, we're glad that you're here. Um, I'm uh, reminded this morning of a story I read just this morning. It's been staying with me. It was a story of, a, of, a, of an American family that goes to England back in the 1800s. True story. And they go because they were told to go visit this guy named Joseph something. I've actually, I don't even know, I've never heard of this guy, this pastor. Apparently they were so eloquent. And they went and visited this church and they came back and they left the service and they said, man, this Joseph, whatever his name is, he really was what they said he is. He's an eloquent, amazing, gifted speaker. And then they, they forgot before they were supposed to leave that they also needed to go listen to this other guy they'd heard of, Charles Spurgeon. And they go and listen to him. And when they come out of his service, they say, isn't Jesus great? That's my goal. I don't want you to go out thinking about me. I hope that you walk out of here thinking about the greatness of the glory of Christ. Um, and so towards that end, let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, you are great and you are supreme. You are good and faithful. We pray, God, that you would attend to us, your spirit in particular, would attend to us this morning as we consider the spirit and his work among us. Namely, that we'd be careful with our tongues. So as to build one another up in the love of Christ. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our, uh, our church supports a ministry by the name of Nine Marks. Uh, Nine Marks, simple organization. They, uh, Nine Marks helps pastors to lead healthy churches all over the world. Uh, and little did Nine Marks know that they were not only serving churches around the globe, but they were also serving a church planning movement that is currently happening within the United States prison system. So allow me to read for you a portion of a letter that was received by Nine Marks. I got permission to use it after I heard about it. Uh, in order to understand some of the work that's happening inside the prison system, one, one prison in particular, of what the Lord is doing for His glory amongst prisons, a church planting movement amongst prison systems. This uh, prisoner, this is a prisoner that writes this, and he writes to the organization. He says, in 2010, the groundwork was laid for a seminary program within the Darrington Prison in South Texas. Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary began classes in January of 2011, and I was blessed to be a part of a cohort of 40 men who were enrolled in the seminary program in January 2012. After graduating in the spring of 2016, I was sent out with three of my fellow graduates to a maximum security prison in Brazoria, Texas. It is widely recognized that prison gangs play a pivotal role in the day-to-day governance of prisons, particularly maximum security prisons. And in the event that gang violence threatens the daily operations of the prison, prison administrators will appeal to recognize gang leaders in order to forestall violence and to negotiate peaceful remedies. Prison officials also know that gang leaders exercise their authority through fear and domination. We know, however, that Christian authority is not like that. 
Even as Christian leaders, our authority works itself out through service. Regardless of how easy it is to understand that lives transformed by the gospel uh, may aid the aims of the prison system and thwart gang activity, overcoming those initial reservations has been slow. The nature of the church, however, is organic, and where the gospel is proclaimed, men are being called into the body of Christ. Thus, as teams of men have been placed within prisons across Texas and several instances, New Testament churches have naturally emerged. Prison administrators have witnessed this positive effect that these groups have on those who participate in them, as well as in the positive effects that others uh, have benefited from that are not naturally connected to that fellowship. Local churches are beginning to change Texas prisons for the better. Upon arriving at Clemens Prison, the team I came with set out to establish contexts that would support us in our aims towards planting a church. Given the nature of Clemens and leadership's reticence towards the concept of church, it has taken us a number of months to forge the groundwork towards an active church. Those things have worked themselves out in several ways. We are able now to move throughout all of the housing areas within the prison. In doing so, we take occasion to evangelize, we engage in one-on-one discipleship, and disciple in a wider sense through teaching groups of men in various classes. We also preach in church services where we are able to open the word of God for the men here. Of course, prison ministry has always been a viable outreach of local churches. Ministries come in from from the outside, spend an hour or two engaged in primarily evangelistic ministry. They proclaim the gospel and then leave. When men receive the grace of God through the gospel, they are called into the body of Christ. The question, however, is where they function as a body within the prison. By God's grace, we are able to fill that role and are seeing the significance of the gospel ministry as it is lived out through a local church. Recently, we have drafted a church covenant. We have a plurality of elders and began the membership within a core group of believers who have served on what we have described, that what we described as the ministry team. This core group of men who live in various housing areas throughout the prison serve as ushers, audiovisual techs, the worship team and prayer team. These men also tithe hygiene products that are then issued to men throughout the prison who are indigent and are unable to afford those products through the prison commissary. It is one one way the church here supports its members as well as the wider prison community. As a church, every fourth Saturday of every month, we are able to recognize new members, hear testimony of how the Lord is at work here at Clemens Prison. Also, months with a fifth Saturday, we are used to hold special services for the purpose of baptizing new members, as well as celebrating the Lord's Supper. The body of Jesus Christ inside Clemens Prism is alive and well. Having somewhat captured the advancement of the work here, maybe what is taking place at Clemens can be shared in order to add to an element of outreach and mission when it comes to equipping churches inside prisons across America. American prisons are in need of a means by which the gospel can be lived out within the context of a local church. For the proclamation of the gospel and the advancement of the kingdom and under his mercy, he signs off. And that man is in prison for life. He has 5,000 years to serve for what he has done. So we've been learning from the letter to the church in Ephesus here. We've been learning to this other church in Ephesus about how God was uniting heaven and earth together in Christ through the church. And I can't think of a better, more contemporary example of how that's happening through this brother's testimony. And so I ask the question, how does that happen? 
How does something like that happen in a prison system amongst people in prison? How does that happen? How does it happen in a great metropolis in an ancient city of Ephesus? How does it happen in a great city like Washington, D.C.? How do people, how do communities change like this? We considered last week that it wasn't merely by the acquisition of information. The prisoner that wrote that letter, he knew when he did his crime, what he was doing was wrong, and yet he still did it. He had that information. We have the information of lying and stealing and hurting others as being wrong, but we all still do these things. We need something more than information to transform us, to lead us, to live the life that God has meant for us, live for His glory. What we need, folks, is Jesus. And the Spirit of Jesus that applies the work of the Gospel. That's what changed those men in that prison. That's what changes us. And that's what will change us. And so this morning, as Joey said earlier, we will finish our time in the letter to the Ephesian church. We'll come back in March and take up chapters 5 and 6. Next week we'll have a Christmas sermon where we'll come together. But today we will see the need for Christ and in particular the Spirit of Christ in order, to, in order to be the people that God has saved us. We must not frustrate, we're going to see, that we must not frustrate the work of the Spirit among us, Restoration Church. We must dance to His rhythms if we are going to know and enjoy His grace as a people out in front of time. And in the time in particular which we really need to learn this, we need to be careful with how we talk. So big idea today, real simple. Dance with the Spirit, don't step on His toes. Real simple. Dance with the Spirit. Don't step on His toes. That means then uh, we are going to need to understand the ministry of the Spirit. So let me read the passage and then we'll consider that. Picking up in verse 29 of chapter 4 in Ephesians. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Looking there in verse 30, we're going to kind of take a look at verse 30 and then use verses 29, 31, and 32 as sort of applications. But looking there at verse 30, this admonition to not grieve the Holy Spirit, that word grieve there means to bring sorrow or to make sad. This is the same word that is used of the rich young ruler where after he walked away because Jesus told him to sell all that he had in order to follow him. The text says the young man went away sorrowful. It's the same word. Went away grieved for he had many possessions. Paul is counseling the church here. He's saying don't Don't make the Holy Spirit of God grieve. Don't make Him sad. Don't make Him sorrowful. We're going to talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But for now, I want you to notice something else that's going on there in verse 30 of the Spirit. that talks about the Spirit. It says there in verse 30, For it is by Him you were sealed for the day of redemption. And if you're familiar, if you've been tracking along with us, remember that's exactly the same language he used in back in chapter 1. So flip over there, back to chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. You'll see the same language. Paul says in 1, 13 and 14, In Him, in Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, so he's explaining how someone becomes a Christian, in Him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, 
we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So the Holy Spirit of God, we see, is the seal of King Jesus. We see that in chapter one, verse 13, and we see it in our text in chapter four, verse 30. But what does Paul mean by the Holy Spirit being the seal? Well, it means one thing with two important implications. Seal here means to communicate possession, ownership. So when I put a Restoration Church sticker, let's say, on this pulpit that I'm standing in front of, and I go and I put it in the back back there, and I set it in that little room that Woodrow Wilson High School lets us put things in. What I'm doing is, is I'm saying this is Restoration Church's pulpit. This is not Woodrow Wilson High School's pulpit. They can use it, but this is ours. To be designated is not Wilson High School's. Likewise, when the Father saves us through the work of the Son, we are sealed. We are stamped with the seal of possession. We are His and He is ours. And because we are now His possession, we are then kept by Him. That's the first implication. We are His possession. We are then kept by Him. So when Paul says the Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance, back in chapter 1, verse 14, we can see that as an implication. Keeping And also, keeping is the implication of chapter 4, verse 30, when Paul says the Holy Spirit of God sealed us for the day of redemption. That's a day, friends, that it's in the future. We're going to talk more about that later as well. So God saved us, adopted us, owns us. Therefore, as a sign of that seal, he then keeps us. That's one of the implications. Seal means to communicate possession or ownership. One implication is that because he possesses us, he will keep us since nothing is more powerful than God. And this sealing functionally is applied through the spirit as he applies the work of the son to those of us that believe. We think back again, even further back to a beginning of Ephesians. Ephesians 1 4 taught us that the father predestined us for adoption as sons before the foundation of the world. And we see there in Ephesians 1.13 that according to Ephesians 1.13, that adoption was ratified, was seen when grace, when by grace, through the work of the Spirit, we repented of our sin and trusted in Christ for the first time. The Spirit facilitates what we might call this great exchange. Where the Spirit takes our sin and applies it to Christ on the cross where He takes our punishment. And then he then takes the status, the spirit takes the status of the son as beloved and as righteous and applies it to us. Jesus takes our sin on the cross and by grace through faith, we take Jesus's status as a beloved, innocent son. And the spirit is the person. I want to emphasize that word is the person, not an it, the person that is facilitating all of this sealing. Maybe a best way to illustrate all of this is by the indication or by the symbol of baptism. We see all this. When a person stands on the water, they are making a public testimony that they are sealed, that they are possessed, that they are owned by the Spirit. And as they go down into the water, they are saying that Christ's death was their death. And when they are raised up from the water, they are saying that Christ's resurrection is also their resurrection. Baptism, then, is like a signature of the king or the red wax signatory on the letter. It's saying, I'm now God's. I'm in Christ and Christ is in me. All that the Son is, is all that I am. And as this happens, we are seeing the external in baptism. We are seeing the external demonstration of the Holy Spirit sealing. This is why Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 9, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ 
does not belong to him. But the Spirit not only seals or regenerates, justifies or applies the saving work of Christ to the believer at the moment of salvation, marking them off his possession. He does that, obviously, but by implication, he keeps and he cleans. He cleans us from the inside out. That's the second implication. The other one. So the Spirit cleanses us from the inside out to then cause us to act as though we are sealed, to act as though we are possessed by him. And the word we use for that cleansing is a word we call sanctification. We are justified in Christ. And then from that justification, the Spirit then sanctifies us to act like we are justified. He's applying, the Spirit is, He's applying the sanctifying grace of Christ to the believer. He lives within us so as to clean us up, to love and to live like who we are in Christ. And this, of course, is the gift of the new covenant. Before, in the Old Testament, we learned that the presence of God resided in man-made temples, but now because of Christ, the Spirit can come to live within us, to save us, to keep us, to sanctify us. Now we are the temple of God. Remember, beloved, that's what we talked about from Paul in chapter 2, verse 21 and 22, when he talked about the fact that we are the dwelling place of God. And this sanctifying peace is what Paul is addressing here in chapter 4, verse 30. Sanctifying is what he's talking about here. Remember that shift, guys. Remember that was such an important shift. From chapters 1 to 3, we talked about our identity in Christ, what God had done in us. And then there was that shift in chapter 4, verse 1, where it said, Therefore, since you are in Christ, since these things are true of you, walk then in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. You are, so be. That's what he's saying. You were sealed, stamped as being God's own child. So listen, don't grieve, don't make sorrowful, the Holy Spirit's work. As He works within you to put away falsehood, we thought about that last week, put away sinful anger, put away theft, put away corrupting talk and bitterness as we think about today, and then put on. That's what He's doing. He's helping us to put on honesty, hard work, encouraging words, compassion and forgiveness. Don't make Him sorrowful in that work that He is actively doing among us. He's doing that among us. He's doing it right now through the preaching. It's literally, he's literally doing it now. And he's doing it among us. Don't frustrate that work. He's trying to help us to dance to the beautiful rhythms of Christ. So don't step on his toes. Now the obvious question at this point is, is how is it we do that practically speaking? That's what Paul is doing in this portion of the letter. How do we do that practically? How can we dance to the rhythms of the Spirit and how is it we don't step on His toes? Well, the answer of Paul is the admonitions from chapters 4 to 6. That's his answer to how we practically walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called, practically not grieving the Spirit, but instead working in concert with Him. His answer is 4 to 6. Chapters 4 to 6. But in the immediate context, Paul addresses the attitudes of our hearts and how they get manifested through the use of our tongues. By our mouths, our words. So we're going to continue using that language of putting off and putting on that Paul often uses. So we step on the toes of the Spirit and we make Him sorrowful when we speak in a way that is hurtful. Therefore, beloved, put off corrupting talk. Put off corrupting talk. You can see that right there in verse 29. Put off corrupting talk. Do you guys see that this is not mere moralism? That Paul is doing. You see how it's connected theologically to our redemption. To the character of God. It's not just mainly walking in here going great. The preacher is going to tell me to not say bad stuff. It's deeper than that. 
Put off corrupting talk. Let no, notice that word there in verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, he says. And by the way, did you notice that first word, let? Don't lose sight of that. Let, let, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Because the Spirit is working within us, we don't have to sin. It is possible within us by the power of the Spirit to not sin. So we let that happen. The very intentional theological word there that Paul is using. We let ourselves sin when we don't choose to be controlled by the Spirit. Paul will talk about that in Ephesians 5.18. So the word for corrupting there is the same word that we would use for uh, the smell of food that is spoiled. You can imagine the smell of old rotting fish on a pier. Same word. Smell of spoiled beef. That's the effect of corrupting talk. It spoils or it harms the unity that we have in the church. Corrupting words is like placing one rotten tomato in an otherwise wonderfully tasty salad. You're enjoying it and upon eating it, it spoils the whole meal. That's what corrupting words do. They spoil the sweet delight of God's unifying grace to the redeemed in the church. So we can consider another letter where, the, where James talks about this. Let's hear how James talks about how corrupting words or how the power of our tongues causes damage. Listen to what he says. James says in his letter in James 3, 5 to 8, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. Great logic here. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. I'm sure that some of you know of words that were spoken to you, maybe when you were a child, maybe just yesterday, and you still are haunted by those words. That's an illustration of what the text is teaching us. And listen for James' diagnosis as to what is going on when we issue those corrupting words. He goes on right after this in James 4 to help us understand why these corrupting or where these corrupting words are coming from. He says in James 4, 1 to 3, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you? Within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. See, friends, we grieve the work of the Spirit among us when we utter corrupting words. And those words are powerful, full of deadly poison, spoiling the joyful, unifying work of the Spirit among us. And those corrupting words that cause division issue from the passions at war within us we desire to spend things on ourselves so much so that we are willing to hurt others in order to get it and this clearly opposes the gospel that saved us to love god and neighbor not ourselves at the expense of god and neighbor and this, of course, seems to be the same conclusion when we come back to our text in chapter 4. Slide down there. You see in verse 31, Paul has the same conclusion that these corrupting words are coming from internal uh, disquietness. Look at verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. 
Those are things that issue from our hearts. All of these things are attitudes of the heart that manifest themselves in pain or hurt towards others, oftentimes through our words, our corrupting talk. We grieve the joyful, sanctifying work of the Spirit when we think of ourselves first, and in bitterness we slander others, disrupting the bringing together of heaven and earth in Christ and the church. And it's right here, friends, where Jesus soberly warns us. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 36, when he says, I tell you on the day of judgment. By the way, that's the same day Paul is referring to as the day of redemption. I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. We can think about that today in a society that is full of things like this. God will have His way. And so brothers and sisters, choose your words carefully. Paul says in just a few lines down, slide down there in chapter 5, verse 4, he says, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. So friend, if you have the habit of filthy language, you grieve the Spirit of God who is at work to sanctify our language. And recall that Jesus never spoke that way. If you offer or enjoy jokes that make light of the ways of God or the people of God, you grieve the Spirit that is working to give us pure laughter. Recall the joy of Christ that was never happening at the expense of someone other and their expense. If you gossip, meaning you speak or spread words that wouldn't, you wouldn't otherwise say to that person directly, you grieve the work of the Spirit that is working to have us speak the truth to one another in love. Recall how often Jesus said truly, truly, and never did He spread lies behind people's backs and sought to bring them down. If you slander, meaning you aim to hurt people by tearing them down through the power of your tongue, be it your spouse, a co-worker, a fellow church member, or a church leader. Listen, you harm or make sorrowful the work of the Spirit aiming to encourage us, not hurt us. Recall, Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart does one speak. It's down in there. You diminish the manifold wisdom of God that is supposed to bear witness to the love of Christ in the church. And for what? For what? To promote more acclaim for yourself? To punish someone? To appease maybe a guilty conscience? Friend, where's the Spirit of Christ in that? Jesus was reviled time and time and time again, falsely oftentimes, and not once did He return revile for revile. Not once. Instead, He entrusted to him to His Father that He would deal justly with them. Yes, it is true that Jesus most certainly spoke harshly to others, but never did he do it to vindicate himself, but only to stand for the love of his Father, to grow, to strengthen that love. That's where those words came from. But maybe corrupting talk that issues from bitterness or malice is not uh, for you at the, uh, much of an issue, as it were, more so than it might be complaining. More often in church circles, it often issues when we complain about something maybe we don't like. So we tell ourselves or those of whom we complain to that we really have their best interests in view. And sometimes that's true. Sometimes that's most certainly true. 
But friends, in a consumeristic culture that's attempting to entertain us at the individual level, be suspicious of those complaints and ask yourself if those complaints reflect a love for God, a love for neighbor, or is it primarily a love for your own individual preference? Paul writes to, the, to another local church in Philippi, Philippians 2.14. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. And he goes on to say there in that passage that you, the church, are lights of the world. And also, as he says back here in Ephesians 4, just, just up a couple lines from Ephesians 4.30, in your anger, he says, or we could say in your displeasure with something, don't sin and give an opportunity to the devil to bring in division in our life with Christ together. Put off corrupting talk. And in so doing, we dance with the Spirit. We don't step on His toes. But also, we need to put on talk that builds up. So instead, fan the, the work of the Spirit by speaking only in such a way as to build up as fits the occasion. Put off corrupting talk. Notice the Scripture does not just give you one, diag- or one sort of uh, action. It doesn't just say just to put off, just to stop that. But He also says to put on something. Put on constructive talk. Put off uh, corrupting talk. Put on constructive talk. talk, talk. Paul says here that we grieve the Spirit who has sealed us for the day of redemption by speaking corruptive words that issue from bitterness, wrath, and anger. We need to put that away. That hinders the work of the Spirit. Instead, we need to replace corrupting talk with encouraging talk. And in so doing, we give grace to those that hear us. Good things to those that hear us. Life to those that hear us. The kind of talk that builds can come in numerous ways. I can think of at least four. Encouraging talk that builds comes from just giving words of encouragement. It can come through words of exhortation. It can come through words of training, helping people understand how the Bible says this or that. And it can even come in the form of rebuke if it's done in a way that is aimed at loving that person and bending them back towards the truth. Verse 32 tells us to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Just think for a moment, imagine for a moment what the Spirit might do among us if we live this out all the more. Now, let me be very clear. I believe that our church does this wonderfully. If you're visiting going, my goodness, you know, what's going on here? Right? Christmas sermon? Right? Must have some problems with Christ. That's not the issue. This church excels at building language. Encouraging language. We had our last community group just this past week. And uh, I was given, my wife and I were given all kinds of letters of encouragement. That's common in the life of this church. That happens regularly. This morning our sister gave me, uh, Kareen gave me a letter this morning. I said, you're already obeying the passage and I haven't even preached it yet. This happens all the time in the life of our church. But imagine if we leaned into it all the more. In a society that's really encouraging us to just be vitriolic in our language, imagine if we leaned into this all the more. What might it do to picture the glory of Christ and offer a kind of beauty and light to a lost world that is so tired of such things? Think about what kind of marriages uh, would happen if we spoke this way and did these kinds of things. Think about our relationships, how they would be more healthy and stronger, reflecting the glory of God. Think about what the Spirit might do with this church even if if instead of hurting each other with our words and actions, trying to punish them, instead that we, as it says in verse 32, forgave as God in Christ forgave us. 
Think about what would happen to us if we forgave at a radical level like we are called to here. How was it that Christ forgave us? I wondered how you would answer that question. Notice that word as. In your Bibles, you should circle that word as. Forgive as Christ forgave us. And how is it Christ forgave us? Well, He didn't minimize our wrongs. He called them what they were. Nor did He just forget those wrongs. He didn't just brush them inside and say, don't worry about it. That's not how Christ forgave us. No, the way that Christ forgave us was by calling our sin, sin. He was honest with how much it hurt Him. And He was honest, and He is honest with how much Uh, It hurt the world. We have 66 books of the Bible that testify to how much our sin has damaged. And we have a world today that continues to testify to that. But Jesus Christ forgave us, not then by minimizing the wrong, but instead choosing to bear the punishment and clear the guilt for that wrong. That's what forgiveness is, and that's what Jesus does. Bear the punishment Clear the guilt. You need to have a, as if you're a Christian, you need to have a good definition of forgiveness. There it is. That's the best I can do. I'm sure there's other people who do it better. But in love, bearing the punishment, clearing the guilt. That's what Jesus does on the cross of Christ. So if you're not a Christian and you're here this morning thinking about what it means to be a Christian, you need to know that. He chose, Jesus chose to do what we could not do. He chose to take your sin, my sin, bear the penalty that should come upon us and then clean, clear the guilt away from us so as to reconcile us back to God in peace and in harmony. He chose to love us by receiving the punishment of our sin, push away the wrong so that we might know peace with God and our fellow man yet again. That's what forgiveness is. That's what forgiveness does. It does not minimize the wrong. It calls it wrong. Nor does it just sweep it under the rug. But forgiveness chooses to take the penalty, clear the guilt out of love for God and love for those that chose to wrong us. This is working in step with the work of the Spirit among us. Forgiving radically like this. But to be clear, there are still consequences for sin when we forgive. But forgiveness bears the penalty of the wrong, clears the guilt so that reconciliation to the peace can then come to rule the relationship yet again. That's how Christ forgave us. And so from the pattern, from that pattern, and from the power of the gospel, we ought to love God and neighbor by forgiving them in the same way. If we choose to withhold forgiveness, we say to Jesus that that particular sin that we choose to withhold, we say that sin is worse than the sin of, say, Paul, who went door-to-door killing and persecuting Christians. And that simply, friend, is not true. We cannot withhold forgiveness. Now, to be clear, I readily recognize, as Paul does here, that compassion, that forgiveness towards those that wrong us or hurt us, we recognize that's hard. Listen, it was hard for Jesus. Very hard for Jesus. But we don't do this work in our own power. What have we been talking about so much this morning? The Spirit work among us. Remember, we do this. We do this work of forgiveness and kindness and compassion. We do this by the power of the gospel as the Spirit works within us to love God and forgive others. We do not trust ourselves. We trust God. We trust the power of the gospel. We trust the power of His Spirit. And so don't grieve His work by withholding forgiveness. Instead, build one another up in love with your words, with your forgiveness. Be kind, be tender-hearted. Forgive as you have been forgiven. 
And when you do that, we dance with the Spirit as He leads us to the beautiful rhythms of His grace. And when we don't do that, we step on His toes, we stop the dancing, we invite division. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God for whom you, Restoration Church, were sealed for the day of redemption. And the day of redemption is a blessed day. It's what I'm going to be studying for two months in South Florida. It's going to be great. The day of redemption is the day when Christ returns and our resurrected spirits will match up with our resurrected bodies and we will enjoy Christ and one another on a resurrected earth as he judges the living and the dead. That's the day of redemption. The church was bought with the blood of Christ for that day. And the spirit means to grow us up towards that day. And that day, friends, is coming. It's coming. So put off living like the world, put on living like the world to come by letting the Spirit fan into flame the benefits and the beauty of Christ by speaking words of grace to one another. This is the good life. This is the way that we were meant to live. This is the life that the whole world longs for but can never seem to find anywhere else. And guys, it's meant to be here. It's meant to be here in the life of the church as we live out the life of Christ with one another as a beacon of light to a darkened world. Remember, this is exactly what Paul has been telling us. Look back at 3.10. The church is supposed to be the manifold wisdom of God to the world. Remember, he says in 3.21, to the glory, glory be to God in the church and in Christ Jesus. As this happens here, we picture a better world that is given to us by the grace of Christ. But remember, Beloved, we don't grow up into that by the mere acquisition of information. But we do so by intoxication. By being so allured by the beauty and love of Christ that we give ourselves to Him more and more, day after day, moment after moment, praying the Word, singing the Word, preaching the Word to one another, loving each other with these words. This is how the Spirit transforms us. The Word goes out. The Word just sort of bounces around us and gets in our hearts and changes us from the inside out. And it just starts to affect us in our community. This is how the Spirit works. We are what we love. And the more that we set our gaze at loving Christ, the more the Spirit will use that to transform us from one degree of glory to another as we look at Jesus. Not just individually, but collectively. See, one of the great devices of the evil one is to convince Christians that transformation is a personal project. The church is just a service provider to our individual needs and improvements, sort of like a school of sorts. That's simply not true. We are saved as individuals, but we grow as different parts of the body of Christ. We need each other. We need each other. Jesus says the Spirit blows where it wishes, but I can tell you the Spirit has His favorite places. You hear them a lot around this church. His favorite places to grow people up in His love and His beauty is in the Word, is in prayer, and is in the community of saints. Saddling themselves around that Word and prayer. Those three ingredients are time-tested and battle-proven to grow soldiers up into being more like heaven on earth. That day of redemption that we have been sealed for. That's what he's doing. So if you feign the word and prayer, and if you keep yourself at a distance from the church, then you will assuredly grieve the work of spirit in your life. That's a promise. But if you lean into the word, if you lean into prayer, if you lean into the community of saints, the church, I can promise you that you will not be the same. You will find corrupting words sloughing off. And you will find building words coming in. We need to know, beloved, that God is at work in doing 10,000 things around us. 
we might be aware of three or four of them. He is primarily working through the church to manifest his glory as he takes the work of Christ and applies it to Jew and to Gentile, to men and women, to young and old, to rich and poor, making them one in Christ, transforming us from the inside out by his love. He's making us a people, a holy people set apart from the world, gathered together in mostly small congregations. It's been the story of the church, mostly small congregations, some big ones. And he's doing this all over the world. Illustrating the coming kingdom, the day of redemption for which the church has been sealed. Restoration Church, do your part. Do your part. May we not grieve the Holy Spirit's work, but instead may we lean into it as we give ourselves to the alluring beauty of Christ. And we are careful with our words. We are careful with our anger. We, we, don't, we, we, we build with our words. We don't tear down. We forgive since Christ forgave us so much. This is what the Spirit of God is doing among us. So dance with him as he leads us to enjoy the rhythms of God's heavenly grace here on earth. Don't step on his toes with your words or with your actions. Fan into flame the gift of God. Brothers and sisters, by grace you have been saved through your faith in Christ. You were and you are his adopted family. He loves you and he likes you. Not because of anything that we have done, but because of what he has done in Christ and what he is doing in our midst. This is who we are. He's made us to be one. And so may we walk in a manner worthy of his calling. May we put off the old. May we put on the new. May we show the world and one another the grace and the love and the mercy of Jesus. And soon enough, the day of redemption will be here. Soon enough, it will be here where we will rejoice alongside our other brothers and sisters from all over the world, every tribe, tongue, and nation. We will be at the foot of the throne of the Lamb that takes away the sin of the world. And we will rejoice and be glad that that community was tasted in this community. But it will only come by the power of Christ through the work of His Spirit as we give ourselves to word, prayer, and community. Sacrificially even. And it will be hard as our brothers in China are experiencing even now. I heard the story of that pastor. Think about this, guys. There's, that church has 100 members. Uh, all of them have been put in prison. 80 of them are still in prison as we speak. That's roughly a little bit smaller than the size of his church. Imagine 80 of our church members being in a prison. And they are bearing testimony to the work and the glory and, and the power of Christ. I heard a story that that pastor is literally out loud uh, testifying and reciting the Westminster Catechism. People just listening to it. You can't help but see that, no matter if you're a believer or non-believer, and not think there's something there that's greater than this world. And that can happen in our midst. May it be so as we give ourselves to looking at Jesus. He's our power. He's our strength. He's our pattern. So may we trust him as his spirit works within our midst. Let's pray together. Lord God Almighty, we thank you that you are a God that's like this. That you have no corrupting words. Even your words that are hard for us to hear are done so as to strengthen us. And thank you, God, that these words issue from a God that is like this, that you are pure and undefiled. And you are making a people that display the supremacy of your worth. Oh, God, may we work in concert with you. Spirit, may we work in concert with you. May we give ourselves to your work. May we not do anything in any way to make you sorrowful. But instead, may we give ourselves to you and to one another, 
as we already are and will be all the more a beautiful community, a countercultural community picturing the day of redemption out in front of time. And may many come to faith in Christ as a result of it. And may we be encouraged in the weary journey till we get there. We pray it in the name of Jesus, the one for whom we live for. Amen.